Hi, I'm Tamisha Bridges-Mansfield, Vice President for Workforce Innovation at Jobs for the Future, also known as JFF. And this is Horizons. In this special podcast series, we'll share the best and brightest highlights from JFF's annual Horizons Summit, a national gathering of influencers dedicated to reimagining the future of learning and work and leaving the past where it belongs behind us. We'll hear from a diverse range of experts, many with unconventional points of view, representing private industry, government, philanthropy, nonprofit, and educational institutions focused on aligning people, places, and systems to drive economic advancement for all. As the world continues to change at a rapid pace, the job market is changing too. And with these changes comes the need for educational institutions and other non-traditional talent pipelines to keep up with the seemingly constant growth and evolution. As it stands now, many young people are still facing several challenges when it comes to building a successful career or choosing the right path to begin with. In addition to policy changes and increased investment, there is a need for a more cohesive journey from educational institutions to the workforce and more structures designed to support individuals in their path to success every step of the way. You might know it as career navigation. In this episode, we'll hear clips from three different Horizons 2021 discussions about what's still standing in the way of career success for many people and how we can help to streamline the process. During the 2021 Horizons Conference, Claire Bertrand, a director at JFF Labs, and Gorik Ng, the author of The Unspoken Rules, Secrets to Starting Your Career Off-Right, sat down to discuss the concept of career navigation and the barriers standing in the way of carving a successful path for youth who have not received equitable opportunities from the public or private sectors. Gorick shared his theory about the main ingredients that go into a high performer at work, conveying the idea of the three C's, competence, commitment, and compatibility. So over the course of over 500 interviews with professionals across geographies, industries, and job types, I began to understand that there's actually a universal definition for what makes for a high performer at work. And it's someone who demonstrates the three C's of competence, commitment, and compatibility. And the idea is this, when you show up as a professional, whether it's in an interview, a cover letter, a resume, and especially on your first day in a new role, the people around you are sizing you up and they're asking themselves three questions. Question one is, can you do this job well? Which is competence. Question two is, are you excited to be here? Which is commitment. And question three is, do we get along, which is compatibility. So competence, commitment, compatibility, the three C's. Your job, all of our jobs, it's to convince the people around us to answer yes to all three questions all the time. Uh, 
We can start thinking about this as a Venn diagram where our jobs is to find our way to the center of those three circles in this Venn diagram. Why? Well, if you aren't showing competence, people aren't going to trust you with more important responsibilities. If you're not flexing your commitment, people may be hesitant to invest in your success at this organization. And if you're not demonstrating compatibility, then people may not necessarily want to be around you. In that so-called airport test, you may not pass that airport test with your coworkers. It's not always fair. It's not always a level playing field. And not all of us will start off at the same spot in this Venn diagram, where some people, given their identity, given the context that they're in, they may find themselves already at the center of all three circles, whereas other people, outsiders to the environments that they find themselves in, may find themselves actually fairly far off from that center. However, from an individual's perspective, it, there's really a, an onus on the individual to try and navigate one's way into the center. And it also raises questions on a systemic level around, are we creating a sufficiently level playing field for people to find themselves at the center? As Gorick mentioned, the theory of the three C's exposes flaws in the current system. There are still several barriers standing in the way of a successful career for people from under-resourced urban or rural communities or those whose identities are marginalized, such as LGBTQ, female identifying, or living with a disability. And it's the role of educational institutions, government, and the workforce to collaborate and remove these barriers and biases going forward. Claire elaborated on some of these barriers and how they might prevent people from demonstrating the three C's to a potential employer. And we also know that lower resource schools may have a higher student to counselor ratio. They may not have as many connections or internship opportunities for young people to build professional skills. So you may have that barrier and that gap may be even further between what school looks like and what work looks like. And then if we look at compatibility, sort of do you get along with us, right? So I think compatibility really opens up the idea of, you know, the fact that sometimes we've got implicit bias happening in the workplace. We've got structural inequities built into institutions and systems such as racism, ableism, sexism. So those things can be barriers to sort of feelings of compatibility within the workplace, as well as commitment. Are you excited to be here? So I think sometimes there's a lack of social supports for learners and workers, or we know there is, which can actually help, it can, can like question the commitment of others or some people versus others, I should say. And I think we can even just look at the example of women, right? The United States, I think, is the only developed country that doesn't have a national policy on maternity leave. Women can come sometimes be the caregivers. Um, and also if you are in retail or in the service industry, you can have an unpredictable schedule, so you can't really manage daycare. So there are ways that things can look like you're not committed or, or you know, there are barriers in place to make you look sort of uncommitted to a workplace when really you're just struggling because you don't have the supports in place to be successful. So individuals have the agency to take Gorg's guidance and run with it, but we do need to build better systems for more equitable opportunities. To help create these equitable opportunities, Claire suggests that governments provide guidance, technical assistance, and funding to high schools and colleges so that every student has a chance to develop a career plan prior to graduation. 
She recommends using state resources to expand the use of tech-enabled career navigation tools in education and workforce settings and increase the capacity of career counselors to prep youth for success going forward. Gorick finished the session by pointing out the gaps that are still prevalent between the education system and the workforce and why there should be more of an emphasis on navigational skills in educational environments, whether traditional or non-traditional. I think one of the concepts that is often overlooked, not in this session, but in general, are these navigational skills. Whereas I think about what we're taught in school whether it's for up to 12 years or 16 years or beyond. So much of school is about bubbling bubbles or filling in the blanks or really conforming to highly structured environments where the syllabus will tell you what's coming up. Instructions are nicely laid out. The expectations are nicely written down for you explicitly. However, when that transition from school to work occurs, whether as an intern, co-op, apprentice, et cetera, all of a sudden you're dealing with ambiguity. And our system of education today really doesn't set people up very well to navigate this form of ambiguity. So as I think about what we can do for individuals, it's to instill so many more of these navigational skills, while at the same time for institutions, for folks who are in a position of influence and power, it's really about recognizing that these unspoken rules exist. They do exist whether you choose to recognize them or not. And once you do recognize them, then the onus is on our systems builders, to be able to level the playing field for all. That's my hope. In our next segment, we'll hear clips from a panel discussion featuring Susan Levine, the former Principal Deputy Assistant Secretary at the U.S. Department of Labor, and Mary Alice McCarthy, the Director of the Center on Education and Labor at New America. The panel kicked off with Susan sharing her perspective on the importance of instilling a career mindset in students from a young age. Susan previously served as an ambassador to Switzerland, where she was exposed to a different perspective on preparing young people for successful careers. She brought these ideas back to the U.S. to help the country view apprenticeship, not as an alternative pathway, but as an additional one. When I served as U.S. Ambassador to Switzerland and Liechtenstein, can't forget little Liechtenstein, those countries embrace it so deeply. And I think as people often think of those countries, they think about incredibly successful economic powerhouses that punch far above their weight. And that is true. But what they don't realize is that 70%, that's seven zero percent of young people do apprenticeship, not high school. But that that culture of career actually starts in the seventh grade when young people start to do career fairs, the eighth grade, they do little career explorations, the ninth grade, they apply, the 10th grade, they start in their apprenticeships that are three to four year apprenticeships. When I had the opportunity to serve in 2014, I saw the system there and my time at Microsoft, I'd been involved in efforts to look at 21st century skills and how do you evaluate those. And as a result, I was able to see when I witnessed what they were doing in apprenticeship, the ultimate delivery of 21st century skills. And that plus a paycheck was really profound. And I worked very hard and diligently with Swiss employers to bring those apprenticeship models back to their US facilities. And that dovetailed with the administration's efforts 
to invest in this, not as an alternative pathway, but as an additional pathway and an equal pathway. Those investments have been so effective since 2014, basically, and thanks to you and others who are working in the Department of Labor at the time, in order to seed youth apprenticeship all across the United States, from South Carolina to Washington, to Colorado, to Wisconsin, to Connecticut, to Rhode Island, all across the United States. We have worked very hard over the past many years, and including on a bipartisan basis, mm-hmm. to expand apprenticeship to include youth apprenticeship and to expand it to new and different areas. So it's amazing that the trades have been able to steward apprenticeship for decades now and keep it humming and running since the 1937 passage of the first National Apprenticeship Act. And now it's an opportunity to build on their work and expand and grow it. Although the U.S. is beginning to see the value in apprenticeship programs, Mary Alice pointed out that there are still several challenges standing in the way of their implementation. We just sort of lack a policy infrastructure for for youth apprenticeship. Frankly, we lack a strong enough policy infrastructure for apprenticeship in general, you know, outside of of the specifics of of occupations in which it has flourished, the construction trades. So I think the the work uh, that has really gotten underway since 2016 has been both a combination of investments and sort of building the capacity of local communities and states to support apprenticeship, and then the policy infrastructure that's needed to do that. One of the things that I think is really important to keep in mind is that there's no lack of enthusiasm for apprenticeship, really. Anytime you talk to people about it, you get them excited about it. They want this for their communities. They particularly want it for their young people just because we created such a such a sort of a harsh system, kind of zero-sum system, where getting into a family-sustaining career is this walking this tightrope of higher education that, that, that's very risky. So we have a lot of enthusiasm, but the enthusiasm, even the most enthusiastic uh, communities are going to hit some structural barriers when it comes time to actually establishing the programs. Mary Alice mentioned the challenges associated with building and nurturing partnerships to strengthen apprenticeship programs, as well as the issue of many industries still requiring a college degree to break into. However, she noted that all of these problems are ultimately solvable. They will just require some policy adjustment and additional investment. In our third segment, we'll hear excerpts from a Horizons discussion called Strengthening Connections from High School to Post-Secondary Education and Work. During the discussion, David Coleman, the CEO of the College Board, said it's time for the organization to welcome change, rethink the impact of the SATs, and listen to a more diverse set of voices. You know, there's been a lot of talk about the SAT, probably too much talk, and about the PSAT. And and I want to clear our minds for a minute because I think all that talk is about its role in admissions. And I might return to that, but for a moment I want to think about something totally different about those exams. Those exams reach millions of young people. And what do they say to those students who are, by the time they reach high school, likely not ready for a four-year degree? And certainly when they take the exams, they receive scores that show that they are not yet ready, likely ready for a four-year degree, for a four-year program. I want to think about identity and the way you probe for a moment about what high school looks and feels like to those young people who are told, including by forces like ourselves, repeatedly, you are not ready. And when I, you know, I look over their score reports and that, you know, it does say you can practice on Khan Academy, you can do more, but it offers one model 
of success and excellence, which is attending you know, college or particularly a four-year program. And we've begun to reconsider and reconsider our entire work to challenge ourselves that must not we do far more for high school students, the majority of high school students, who are not likely on track for a four-year program. And, and, and how can we say so much more to them and that be consequential? And it's interesting because even the SAT itself for, for students on their way to a four-year college, its actual power is less in ranking students, although that's what fascinates people, but often for many students who, when they take it in their school, not on a Saturday, many of them who are ready for a four-year college uh, who didn't think they were or who weren't planning on it, raise their hands 20% more just by doing it. Think about it. And if a college writes back to them, finds their name, it increases their chances of going quite a lot. So the secret power of that moment of taking an exam is, is not really what it gives you it back as a score, but is if you are seen and particularly if a conversation opens up. So what if that could be true for those students who are not yet ready for a four-year degree? So what we're contemplating is a partnership with players like JFF, who assembles us here today, players like Strata, other providers of information, to provide a young person in that situation with terrific local information about, about credentials that are within their reach, that are within their power, nearby, that they could get to advance their lives. And we've begun working on this with a set of tools called Career Finder, where we've mapped the PSAT, et cetera, to career opportunities. We ask students an interest inventory because it's all about what you love to do. And, you know, if you look at it, we're thinking about a student like, you know, we, we in our research, a, a woman who's leading our work, a woman named Lily lives down the road from her, and she got our score report and it said she wasn't ready and she was discouraged. But she had the frame of mind to look around and frame a great dental degree program. She went from being a dental assistant to moving up the ladder. And why can't we be partnering with organizations so that we can say to a young person, you actually are already have what it takes. You may not yet be ready for a four-year college, but there's a terrific community college opportunity right around the corner. There's a terrific productive credential you could get. And we're here to listen and learn as we develop that idea. And some students who go to community college, of course, are ready for a four-year college, but it's a great first step to them. The future looks different for every young person, so it only makes sense that we should all be taking a broader look at the multiple paths to career success. David believes it all begins with fostering people's unique interests and respecting our differences. It's got to begin with young people's interests. It's got to begin with what's around them and connecting them to it. And I think this is a time for the College Board to listen to a group of voices that have been calling on us for some time to have a more diverse view of the colleges we interact with, including a much more vibrant relationship with community colleges and doing much more to, to create linkages between students in them and productive degree programs, but also other credentialing programs. So I think it is time for humility, but also to use the full freight of our voice to say we have not adequately served thus far the students in this country. What we've done is not enough. There are students who are in the shadows. It's a majority of students and they've been betrayed to harm, and it's time for us to change. Providing the education, training, and preparation necessary to enter today's workforce isn't always an easy task. For many young people, there are still several barriers standing in the way of a smooth transition from an educational setting to a full-time role. We'll all need to work together to help break those barriers down and build new roads to success and advancement. 
Achieving a career-oriented mindset is an important piece of the puzzle for many of today's youth, which is why educational institutions should place a greater emphasis on helping students cultivate navigational skills from a young age. We also know that policy changes and more funding are needed to accomplish many of these goals. So continuing to speak up and push for improvement will be key to moving forward. Thanks for listening to the Horizons podcast brought to you by JFF. Together, we're building a future that works and inspiring others to fight for equality, diversity, and inclusivity everywhere. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast and tune in to our next monthly episode. To learn more about Horizons or watch the full sessions featured in today's episode, visit us online at jff.org forward slash horizons. I'm Tamisha Bridges Mansfield, from Jobs for the Future. See you next time.